Uh, hey, we're going to be in the book of Daniel chapter 4 today. We're actually going to be in two places. Daniel chapter 4 is where we're going to start in uh, verse 34. Uh, so go ahead and flip there and then uh, get a thumb or a finger and put it also in Daniel chapter 6. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time again. The first one is Daniel chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 34. And then uh, we're going to be flipping over to Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. And we're going to spend the majority of our time uh, there. Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 34. That's where we're going to start. And then keep a finger in Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Where did I get the sweater? Oh, goodness, I don't know. Hume Lake. Yeah, it's a great time. How are we doing tonight? Doing good? Good. It's good, to, it's good to hear you. Again, I'll say it one more time because I know there's two verses. may be a little bit confusing. Uh, Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 is where we're starting. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1 is where we're going to be like jumping to. So again, have your Bible open to Daniel 4, 34, and then keep a finger in Daniel 6, 1. You'll get there in a minute. Um, as we continue on from uh, a little bit of my testimony following this morning, uh, we left off with me uh, in the backseat of a car uh, coming back from what most people believe to be the happiest place on earth. Uh, if you remember correctly a little bit of my story, uh, I had uh, gone through a very challenging childhood and that led me to... Um, internalizing a lot of, of pain and shame and guilt, and then I tried to exercise that or fix that or, or do something with it by uh, doing things the way that the world says would help me. Uh, and so I uh, started partying, I started drinking and things of that nature, and that led me to a place where I was filled with anxiety and depression. I lost all of my friends, and again, I was in the backseat of this car coming home from Disneyland, staring at the ceiling, wondering if my life had any significance or value, and if I'm being completely honest with you, I didn't think so. I was numb uh, in the truest degree of the word, and... Um, I had mentioned earlier that this was the most important moment of my life. I'd like to add to that. Uh, this would become the best moment of my life. As I was sitting in the backseat of this car, I had a thought, but it wasn't just a thought. It was like something had been downloaded in my spirit that was so heavy that I couldn't ignore it. I thought, well, I haven't tried God. I tried everything else, but I haven't tried God. When I was growing up, my mom, as we were jumping from house to house and homelessness to motels, she always made sure that we were in church. She always made sure that on a Sunday we were somewhere in a pew hearing the Bible taught. And so a lot of my childhood, although laced with pain and suffering, was filled with hope. And so I remember sitting in the back seat of this car thinking, I've given everything else a shot except for him. I got no other option. And so I go home that night and I open the door and my mom asks how I'm doing and I just kind of ignore her and go to my room. And I take the pink Bible off the shelf that we got from the homeless shelter years before. And I sit down on my bed. I open the book. And I have no idea what I read. And I have no idea what I prayed. But can I tell you what I know for sure? I prayed it honestly and I am confident that it sounded something like this. God saved my life. God saved my life. 
And I know for a fact, because I'll never forget this moment, I went to bed that night feeling for the first time in my life like I had a father that loved me. And I woke up the next morning feeling like I was a new person. And I don't have all the details and I couldn't explain everything. And all I knew was that from that moment on, I wanted to serve Jesus. I wanted to give my life to God. And I wanted, I wanted him to use me for his purposes, whatever that might look like. And so surprisingly, as we've been journeying through the book of Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a similar experience. And so if you've been tracking with me, we're in the book of Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 34. Let's see what comes of the king. Daniel is again, or sorry, the king is once again speaking, and he says, At the end of the days, I... And again, this is speaking of his time spent as a beast. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised, and I honored him. Circle every time you see the word him, his, or he. He says he honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Verse 35. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does all according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand and say to him, what have you done? Let's jump down to verse 37. He says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all of his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. He finally gets it. He finally gets it. So what do we learn from the king's experience in finally coming to know God as his personal God? In order to live with resilience for God, this is a good note to write down. You have to be a Christian. In order to live with resilience for God, it all starts there. You have to be a Christian. You have to have a relationship with God. You will not stand for a God that you don't know. As you finish writing, let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, thank you that you've given us the ability to love you. God, I pray that tonight as we would consider the truth of your word and the reality of the gospel and what that means for our lives and our futures, would you help us to focus? We know that you're here. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so uh, similar to what we were doing earlier, uh, I believe it was today or yesterday, we're going to skip chapter five because the bulk of our information and the text that we're going to study today is in chapter six. But what I want to do is recommend or, or um, just suggest that you go through chapter four Five on your own time. Um, it's an incredible story. There's some awesome things in it. There's some spooky things in it. Like, I'm just like, as a heads up, a little teaser, uh, there's a hand that appears out of nowhere and starts writing on a wall. And everybody's like, oh my gosh, there's a random hand. Uh, and so it, it, we're going to summarize it a little bit today. Uh, but again, if you have some time tomorrow or maybe after you go down the mountain, go to chapter five and read it for yourself. But again, just for the sake of kind of keeping us in the text so we can understand what's happening, I'll summarize it for you quickly. And so chapter four is the last place that we see King Nebuchadnezzar. 
And we aren't told what happened to him, but uh, we can assume that he probably died in Babylon of natural causes or else uh, it would have been recorded in the scripture or somewhere in the general like archives of history. Um, but in chapter five, we're introduced to the king that would follow after Nebuchadnezzar and his name is Belshazzar. And this king would follow in the early footsteps of King Nebuchadnezzar. He had a prideful heart and he uh, worshiped God similar to Nebuchadnezzar did. And his reign as king wouldn't last long. He would be killed after Daniel interprets this mysterious sign of this hand that appears on a wall. And he said that it meant that, that this kingdom, that, that uh, Belshazzar's kingdom would come to an end, that Babylon would be finally finished. And King Belshazzar was murdered soon after that. And a new king took his place. But Babylon, the nation that we've been studying for the past few days, had finally fallen just as God had promised. And now King Darius sat on the throne of what had become, or what would become, the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is where we pick up in Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, or governors, or overseers, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, or Daniel was responsible for, so that the king might suffer no loss." Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. And so if we remember, if Daniel was a teenager, when he, first, uh, when he was first exiled to Babylon, he would now be in his 80s with a vibrant relationship with God that was spilling over into every part of his life, so much so that this new king would have recognized it. He would have seen it. He would have thought something's different about you that's affecting the way that you lead and love and treat people. And so he, he plans to promote him to the highest rank in the entire kingdom, only second to him. And so what we see is God has been sustaining Daniel through so many different trials in his life, through exile, through attempted murder, through lonely nights, and I'm sure temptations to give up on the whole thing. And yet God never left Daniel, and this is the beautiful truth. God never stopped using Daniel for his glory. And this is the expectation of the Christian life. And unfortunately, this is what I see just to die out in the, in the church. Faithfulness to God does not take one's foot off the gas. There is no retirement from the faith. I believe that some of you tonight will begin your relationship with God. And your journey will, filled, will be filled with joy and pain and it'll be filled with confidence and, and the occasional doubts and it'll be filled with highs and lows. But, but through it all, I want you to be certain that God will not leave you and he will not finish using you to bring about his purpose in the world until it is time to call you home. God has a purpose for your life. Verse four. Then the high officials and the satraps, they sought to find a ground to complain against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. 
but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and had no error or fault found in him. And then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. And then these high officials and these satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. They're, they're trying to sweet talk him. They're trying to get him to, to be open to listening what they have to say. They say, O King Darius, all of the high officials of the kingdom, all of the, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the, the governors, all of these important people in which you care about their opinion, they've all agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, or in a sense, they're all agreeing that you should make a law that whoever makes petition or whoever prays to any God or any man for 30 days except to you, O king, they should be cast into a den of lions. Now, O king, establish this law and sign this document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Again, it cannot be changed. And so when Daniel hears of this and he knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, this is so beautiful, where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and prayed. And he gave thanks before God as he had done previously. And so the favor that Daniel had received from the king, he made the other officials jealous. And they, so they sought to have him killed. They encouraged Darius to make this law stating that if anybody prays to any God, unless they were praying to this God, who they considered to be God, the king himself should be murdered by e being eaten alive by lions. We learn so much of Daniel's faith in verse 10. It says that although persecution was certain, although pain was certain, although hostility was there, Daniel prayed. He continued to pray, but not only did he pray, he prayed openly. His faith was private in the sense that it was his, but he was not quiet about it. As he had always done, he was faithful. And so what I want you to see is no matter what ruler Daniel served, no matter what empire was in power, no matter what rank he held, no matter what friends he had or enemies he had made, no matter how risky his devotion was, Daniel obeyed God. Let that be true of us as well. In verse 12 through 15, because Daniel prays at an open window, the officials see him disobeying God, sorry, disobeying the law that the king had set. And so they notify the king, and although King Darius does not want to follow through with this punishment, as, as we had seen in the video, he has no choice. And so let's see what happens in verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. And then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. He couldn't sleep. He was so disturbed. And so Daniel is thrown into a lion's den to die. 
a stone was rolled out front and sealed with a clay material that had the king's signature on it. And if anyone attempted to roll back this stone and break this seal, they would be committing a crime against the king. And so therefore, it was deserving of death, of punishment. So no one would do it. The point of this is to make it clear that Daniel was not getting out. He had to spend the night in the den. Has anybody in here uh, watched um, Shark Week before? Anybody here Shark Week fans? Um, so I had mentioned before, I am not a like, I'm not an ocean guy, you know what I mean? And I don't really watch scary movies. Like that's never been my thing, that's not my thing. Uh, but like what I do sometimes in order to like get the thrill of watching a scary movie uh, is especially during Shark Week, I will make sure that I grab like a tub of popcorn, I sit down on my couch, I throw on the TV and I see sharks swim around the ocean. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is terrifying. And it never fails. Anybody in here that's like that, you like Shark Week? Like, yeah, okay, awesome. Not alone. And so I sit there on the couch and I watch this, this TV show and it never fails that in an episode, it doesn't matter, uh, it, always, it always happens. There's an episode where there's this like scuba diver or there's this swimmer that is, is out in the open ocean for God knows whatever reason, like just swimming around doing their thing. And then all of a sudden from the corner of the screen, you see the fin, right? You see the fin and the, the, the fin starts moving around and you know what's gonna happen. And so I sit there with my popcorn and I'm kind of freaking out. And then, and then the camera pans and you see this, this beast, gigantic, great white shark, this animal that is so powerful, swimming through the ocean at speeds that, that keep me up at night, going towards this, this innocent swimmer. And then all of a sudden the swimmer recognizes, oh my goodness, I'm being chased by, by a predator and what do they do? They, do they sit like still and calm? No, they start flailing around and they start trying to, trying to figure out how they're gonna get back to the boat and here comes the shark moving at like 500 miles an hour, ready to take advantage of this poor, innocent, call him a scuba diver. And it never fails that as the shark gets closer, the inevitable happens and the innocent person somehow gets bit and the shark will swim away and we have this unfortunate circumstance. And so the point in me sharing this story with you is that I want you to understand that there is never hope for the swimmer. The beast is always too powerful and the person is at a disadvantage because they are in the animal's territory. And so here's my point. It's the same thing that we see here in the Bible. There was no hope for Daniel. The lions would have been starved to ensure that whatever was thrown into their home would be eaten. Daniel would have been mutilated immediately. Please do not get that wrong. Unless the king's prayers were answered and God intervened. Let's see what happens. Verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of the lions. And as he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? The king's question, he, he mirrors what King Nebuchadnezzar had said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego at the fiery furnace. Remember the king, he had said, what God is able to deliver you from my hand? 
See, this is the question that we keep coming back to in the book of Daniel. Is God able to save from certain death? When weak, frail, innocent, maybe not innocent, but people are doomed and all hope is lost, can God rescue them when they clearly cannot save themselves? Is God able to save? Verse 21. Then Daniel said. Hmm. Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. And so Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the lion's den. They, their children and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all of their bones in pieces. And so just like the fiery furnace, God sends an angel that appears, that saves them. There were no wounds. There were no limbs that were lost. There was no blood that was spilled. Just like the fiery furnace, there was no singed hair, damaged clothes, or the smell of, of, of smoke even on them from the furnace. And those that tried to have Daniel killed were themselves thrown into the den and eaten, proving that it was God's protection that kept Daniel safe, not mere coincidence. Daniel's God was the true God of the universe. And yes, he was able to save from certain death. This morning we talked about, about sin and its consequence being not physical death like a fiery furnace or lions, but eternal separation from God in hell where, where sin is rightly destroyed and the sinner is punished forever. The good news or the gospel and the, the entire point of the book of Daniel is that God is not only able to save from physical death, but he can save from spiritual death as well. As well. And not only that, he wants to. He desires to. That is where his heart is set. And so how does he do that? Let's be reminded of what we covered this morning. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Every single person, regardless of who you might be whenever you've lived, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. We've all missed the mark. We haven't measured up to the perfection of God and his expectation for us. And so the penalty or the, the wages of sin, the wages uh, for sin, but God demonstrates his own love. The penalty or the punishment for sin is death, or eternal separation from God in this place called hell. And so how does God save us from hell and save us, from a, or save us for a relationship with him? By sending his son, Jesus. By sending his son, Jesus. So who is Jesus? He is God the son. He is the son of God. He was the fourth man in the fire, if you remember correctly. And he was the angel in the den that shut the mouths of lions. God the Father would send his son Jesus to save Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and later he would send him again to save us from hell. 
by having him suffer the wrath of God for sin on our behalf. In other words, Jesus would pay the sin debt that we owed. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so who is Jesus? If you're familiar with your Bible, Jesus is fully God and what we celebrate on Christmas Day is that he was born in a manger in Bethlehem. And he was God and he was perfect and he was pure. And as he grew up, he never did anything wrong. He never accumulated any amount of sin debt for himself. He was perfect, even as a child. The Bible says that as he continues to grow at about, about the age of 30, he would go out and he would uh, surround himself with, with friends people that he would call disciples and he would teach them incredible things. He would say things that even people that don't believe in God would recognize. He would say things like, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And if you, if you wanna enter into the kingdom of heaven, you must first be last. And so not only was he a great teacher, but he did incredible things. He walked on water, he casted demons out of men. He multiplied bread. He called people out of the grave back to life. He healed blind eyes. He loved people intensely and fiercely. This is Jesus. This is God. And so because he would say things like, your sins are forgiven, there are religious people that were at that time that, that, rubbed, that, that rubbed them the wrong way. And so these people called the Pharisees, they decided that they needed to put an end to Jesus's ministry. And so they, they concoct a plan and they, they get uh, the Roman government at that time on their side to capture Jesus. And so again, if you're familiar with the gospel and the, the stories of the gospel, Jesus finds himself the night before he's crucified, bowing in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to his father, asking that he would give him strength. The Bible says that he is so so, so in agony that he would sweat like great drops of blood from his face. The Bible says that in the near distance at that time, he would hear the chains and the fire of Roman guards coming to capture him. And they do. Jesus is led away and in the middle of the night, he's faced with an illegal trial and there's people that surround him, that accuse him of doing things that he never did and saying things that he never said. And yet through it all, Jesus stands there, silent. They begin to beat him and rip the beard out of his face and spit on him for doing nothing but claiming the deity that he was, that he was God. So they lead him away from that trial and they decide that they're gonna punish him and so they flog him, they, they destroy his body with metal objects and he's bloodied and he's bruised and he's dehydrated and he's, he's tired and he's in pain. And I'm sure he's, he's, he's ashamed, he's probably disappointed. It's at this point in time that the Roman government decides and the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the day, decide that Jesus needs to not just be punished, to not just be mocked, to not just be embarrassed, but he needs to die. And so they lead Jesus away to be crucified. And he walks up a hill called Golgotha that was a, about the size of six football fields and they make him carry his own cross. That would have been about 100 pounds. 
As he walks up the hill of Golgotha, there are people that line the roads that mock him. Eventually, they get to the top of the hill and they put Jesus on the cross and they take three nails, two for each wrist and one through his feet and they hang him there. It's at this point in time, this was a, a, a way that the Roman government would kill rebels. Uh, people typically wouldn't die from bleeding out or uh, just the pain of the crucifixion, but they would die from suffocating. And so Jesus would hang here like this and in order for him to catch his breath, he would have to lift himself up and take a breath and then fall back down. Now, the problem is in doing this, it's excruciating pain. So oftentimes people would pass out because oxygen wouldn't get to their brain and he would hang there. And Jesus is there and he says some incredible things as he hangs on this cross that people have recorded in scripture and, and they know again, Christian or not, he says things like, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As he's hanging on the cross, the Bible says that about 12 o'clock when the sun should be the highest in the sky, it gets dark as a sign of God's judgment. And it's in this moment that I believe that God pours out his wrath for sin on Jesus. We talked about that this morning, the disgust, the evil, the damage that it does to our families, to ourselves. Jesus, sorry, Father God, he pours out his wrath for sin on Jesus. And we can, we can feel the agony, we can see the agony that Jesus is experiencing because he says something that the Bible doesn't translate into English because it is so important, it's so powerful. Jesus is hanging there and he says, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabashatani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the physical part of the death was bad. The spiritual death was worse. Jesus hangs there having done nothing wrong. The Bible says that at about three o'clock that day, Jesus would bow his head and give up his spirit, showing us that he was in control the entire time. In his ministry, Jesus said that no one takes his life from him. He willingly lays it down for those that he loves. So Jesus dies and two men called uh, Joseph from Arimathea and Nicodemus. They're two religious people that actually believed that Jesus was, that he said that he was. They take him off the cross. They wrap him in fine linen reserved only for a king and they take him to a tomb. And they lay him inside and they roll a stone in front and that's the end of Friday. And then Sunday comes and the Bible says that there are disciples that come to the tomb of Jesus. And it's at this time that as they, as they come to this tomb, they see the stone has been rolled back and sitting where Jesus, has, his body has been laid. There was an angel. You know what the angel said? Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not risen Sorry, he is not here. He's risen. Jesus is alive. And so what does that mean for you and your life? How does that translate to you having a relationship with God? 
The book of Romans chapter 10 verse 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, that you too will be saved. What does it mean to confess that Jesus is Lord with your mouth? It, it means more than just saying Jesus is Lord at a church service, at a camp, or back at home, and then going back down the mountain and living your life the exact same way that you did before you came up here. If that was the case, you'd be just like King Nebuchadnezzar. To say that Jesus is Lord is to say, Jesus, you are my God, you are my King, you are everything. And not only that, you have permission, you have the authority, you have the power to tell me how I should live, what I should believe, what I should think. You own me. Jesus, you're everything. I give my life to you. It's more than just believing in God. It's more than just believing that he exists. The book of James says that even the demons believe in God and they shudder because they'll be punished in hell. To confess that he is Lord is to give your life to him for his purposes and bow your knee. To believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead is to believe and receive everything that he accomplished for you in raising from the dead, namely purchasing the forgiveness of your sin. Bible says that he, speaking of Jesus, who did not sin, was treated as if he had, so that way you, who had accumulated a lot of it, could be treated like you hadn't. And so this is the posture of salvation. This is how you become a Christian. This is how you begin your relationship with God. Jesus, you are my Lord. I give my life to you. Would you forgive me of my sin? And if you do that, and if you mean it, God will change your life. And you will begin to have your relationship with him that will lead you into eternity. And so what I'm going to do tonight is invite you to begin that journey. I am not the type of pastor that thinks that in spaces like this we should close our eyes and bow our heads. Um, all week we've been talking about how there's a world outside of these walls and down this hill that is going to be resilient, or is going to be hostile towards your faith. And so what I'm going to ask you to do, if that's you tonight, and you would say, I've recognized that I don't know God, I know that I have sin that needs to be paid for, and I want Jesus to kill it on the cross, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life, what I'm going to invite you to do in a moment is to stand. There's a couple reasons why I do this. There's nothing special about standing. But I'm going to invite you to stand primarily so that way those around you, those that love you, that brought you up this hill, your leaders, your parents, your school staff, they can see that you're making this decision and they can come around you and they can support you and they can talk with you and they can maybe answer some questions that you have about what I had shared tonight. The second reason is because I want your friends and all those around you to see that you're making this commitment. And I want them to hold you accountable because that is the reason, that is, that is the call of the church. And I want them to support you. And so if that's you tonight, I'm not gonna waste any more time on the count of three. I'm just gonna ask you to stand. If you wanna make Jesus the Lord of your life and you wanna receive the forgiveness of sin that he purchased for you on, on the cross, on the count of three, one, two, three. If that's you tonight, would you go ahead and stand?
Eyes on me, eyes on me. We're not looking around. I'm going to pray over you. And then I have a second invitation. And then I'll walk us through what we'll do next. And so for those of you that are standing, you're saying that you're making a commitment to follow Jesus. Come what may. Suffering, pain, loss, disappointment, come what may, Jesus is Lord. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. Father, thank you for doing what only you can. God, thank you for convicting hearts. Your word says that it is only by the power of your Holy Spirit that people can come to know you. Word says that by grace we have been saved through faith, and this is not of our own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of our works, so that no one can boast about it. And so, for those in this room that have made this decision, God, I pray that you would use them for your glory. Fill them with your spirit. Work mightily in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Stay standing, eyes on me. There are people in this room. You know Jesus. You have a relationship with God, but you have been neglecting time spent with him, and your life looks no different than somebody that does not. And I'm gonna ask you this, this week, if you are here and you've said, I wanna get my life back on track, not for the sake of salvation, but for the sake of repentance, turning from my sin and moving towards Jesus. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to stand. One, two, three. If that's you, and you'd say, I want to repent of my sin. I want to turn back and follow Jesus. I have been walking away from him. Once more, let's pray, and then we're not going to talk. We're just going to stay standing, and my friend's going to give us some instruction on what we'll do next. Lord, thank you. Uh, your word says that as, as those uh, repent, God, that there is a celebration in heaven and angels rejoice. God, thank you that the grave has been robbed, that hell has been robbed, and that we are adding people into your kingdom. Lord, thank you that this is more than just a game. This is not something that we just play to do for fun. God, but this has weight that impacts and affects destinies. Lord, thank you that you are good, that you are a good God that wants to save. Lord, I pray again that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would do what only you can in bringing yourself glory through our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.